All right, so today we're in the second week of our study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel that we're calling Kings and Prophets. And as I mentioned last week, uh, 1 Samuel comes right at the period in the life of Israel where uh, it's the end of kind of the judges period. And the time of the judges was this period of near anarchy in the life of Israel. And, and Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, which is a uh, recipe for disaster and anarchy. So the people of Israel, they cry out for a king. That's the premise, really, of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, is that the people of Israel cry out for a king. God grants their request, gives them a king. But then very quickly, they come to understand that not only is, is leadership uh, an absolute necessity, uh, but it's also something that can be potentially incredibly destructive. And so uh, 1 Samuel really kind of lifts up the, the responsibilities and characteristics of good leadership, but also the pitfalls of leadership and the things that we need to avoid. And everyone who uh, is called by God, and we are all called by God, to live out this incredible mission that God has placed us here on earth for really have a lot to learn from 1 Samuel in terms of the, the characteristics, the responsibilities, and the pitfalls of leadership. Last week, we looked at the story of Hannah and talked about how if it wasn't for Hannah, the rest of 1 Samuel wouldn't take place, that Hannah prayed for a son, having no idea that her son would one day become a prophet that would counsel a king out of whose lineage would come a Messiah who would save the world. And it was because of the God-centered prayer of a woman in the midst of incredible disappointment and pain that all of that takes place. This week, we're focused on chapters four, five, and six, which are all about, interestingly enough, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the word Ark simply means chest, it means a box, basically, literally means a box. And the Ark of the Covenant was essentially a wooden box that was uh, four feet long, uh, so not that big, four feet long, uh, about two and a half feet tall, and about two and a half feet wide. So quite a bit smaller than Steven Spielberg made it look in Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Uh, quite a bit smaller than that. And this box was completely covered, it was wood, but it was completely covered with gold. And at the corner, the top corner of the box, at every corner at the top of the box, there was a gold ring. And, uh, and the rings were there so that poles could be placed through those rings and the ark could be carried without touching the ark. And the only ones who were allowed to carry the ark were those from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, those that were from the tribe ultimately of Aaron and Moses. They were the only ones allowed to transport the ark. And on top of the ark was this solid gold slab that was called the mercy seat. And on each side of the gold slab, there were two gold cherubim, two angels that uh, had wings outstretched and were facing each other. And under the gold slab of this four-foot-long box um, is where the two tablets of the Ten Commandments 
resided. And so that's, that's what the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark typically resided in the back room, the very, very back room of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies. Now, in almost every culture, this is what's interesting about where the ark was located in the tabernacle. In almost every culture, the back room is almost always the place of power. Or as it's described in the musical Hamilton, the room where it happened. Like uh, every culture has a room where it happens, a room where decisions get made, a room where power resides. And, and that is not the room that everyone sees when they first enter the building. That is almost always a room in the back somewhere. And that was true with the Ark of the Covenant. And that was true with the Holy of Holies, that it was in the back of the tabernacle. So the fact that the Ark was in a small room in the back of the tabernacle was a symbol that this, this is where the power resides. And in that room was not a conference table uh, that powerful people could sit around. In that room was simply, the only piece of furniture in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God resided. There was no other furniture in the room, just the Ark. And no human being was allowed to enter that room except for the high priest, and the high priest could only do it once a year. And this was the room where Moses, if you remember, where Moses experienced the power and the presence of God. Chris was talking about the power of presence of God today. Right above the mercy seat, right in the space where the two cherubim are facing, right in the place where it looks like some object should go. Because you have these two angels with their wings outstretched and they're facing each other and it, they're pointing like to something and it looks like an object should go there, but there's no object that was at that point in the ark. And it's at that point where the cherubim are facing that there would appear the kavod. The kavod literally means heavy light. And it's a word that describes the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, the heavy light of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And God's voice would come out of this light and speak to Moses. Can you imagine what an incredible experience that would have been for Moses to go into the Holy of Holies, to, to be in the presence of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, to see this light, this Shekinah glory of God and out of it to hear the voice of God. Just an amazing, amazing experience. Now, chapters four, five, and six basically talk about how the Ark of the Covenant was lost and then returned to Israel. And there's been lots of movies made about that, lots of documentaries made about the lost Ark of the Covenant. But chapter four, if you wanna know like where this all starts, chapter four, 1 Samuel, is where it actually begins and we first find out how the Ark first got lost. Here was what was going on in Israel. Israel had fallen into a state of decay, social decay, moral decay, spiritual decay, and that decay was in many ways embodied in Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli was the high priest of Israel. He was, at the, he was the one at the temple. Remember last week, he was the one at the temple when Hannah came and prayed 
for a son. He was the one who she later brought her son Samuel to when she dedicated him to the Lord. Eli was a good man, a faithful man, a good high priest. But his sons, who were also priests, were not so awesome. And by this time, Eli, who was a very old man, basically his sons were running, uh, Hophni and Phinehas were running all the religious institutions in Israel. And they were both utterly corrupt. They stole, they embezzled money, they seduced women who came to make sacrifices at the temple, all really crummy stuff. But there they were in a position of influence in Israel. And when the Israelites, here's what sets up kind of uh, 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6. When the Israelites had lost yet another battle with the Philistines, their kind of arch enemies at that time, they thought about all the times when the Ark of the Covenant had been present when God had provided for them. The Ark was there when they marched around Jericho, the city of Jericho, and the walls around Jericho fell. The Ark of the Covenant was present with them. The Ark of the Covenant was there when God stopped the waters of the Jordan River and let the Israelites walk into the Promised Land on dry ground. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there over and over again when Moses and Joshua led the Israelites into battle and they were victorious. The Ark of the Covenant was there and was in the midst of the battle. So, Hophni and Phinehas go and get the ark, and they have a plan. They have an idea. And they bring it into the Israelite camp as they prepare to once again go into battle with the Philistines, thinking this will help. They plan on carrying the ark into the battle in order to guarantee an Israelite Victory, Because the ark was present when the walls of Jericho fell. The ark was present when the water stopped around Jordan. The ark was present in all these other battles that Moses and Joshua faced. Like the ark was present. So it must be the ark. That's what's missing. And so they plan to bring the ark into battle. And this is what happens when they bring it into the camp. They just bring the ark into the camp. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. It was, like, it was like an earthquake. You know, they talk about uh, the Seattle Seahawks. They have this uh, stadium that the way it was acoustically designed, when people go crazy and the fans get loud, that it feels like the ground is shaking. And actually, there's been seismic activity that has been recorded at certain points in Seahawks games. And that's kind of what happens when the ark comes into the camp. There's like seismic activity that happens in this shout that goes up. It's, it's also a little bit like when Tiger Woods was at his prime and you were out on the golf course at the Masters or whatever and Tiger hits uh, you know, something in from 150 yards and the crowd goes crazy and everyone else who's on the course can hear it going, oh no, here he comes again. And that's what happens here is that this shout goes up and the Philistines began to go, oh no, what has happened? Upon hearing the uproar, the Philistines ask, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God 
not the God, a God, has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. We, uh, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kind of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Israelites go into battle brimming with confidence. They've got the ark. And they're undefeated when they have the ark. So they go into the battle brimming with confidence. They think they can't lose, but they are utterly and totally defeated. They lose 30, they, they bring in 100,000 soldiers. They lose 30,000, a third of their soldiers die. They lose 30,000 soldiers. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. The ark of the covenant is captured by the Philistines. It's the worst defeat Israel has ever experienced. There's never been a time before when the ark was taken into battle and they lost. Up to this point, they had been completely undefeated when the ark was present. And when a messenger returns from the battle lines to tell Eli what's happened, he falls backward from the place where he is seated and he dies. Which brings us to chapter 5. And this is what happens next. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was one of the, the five largest cities in Palestinian territory. So they took it to Ashdod. And then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now you go, well, who was Dagon? Well, Dagon was literally the corn god. He was the corn god, the god of the corn harvest, which just goes to show you that you can make a god out of absolutely anything, right? He's the corn god. And I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that there are probably not a lot of people in the Washington, D.C. area worshiping the corn god. But every culture, including ours, Every culture has its own gods, has its own idols that it worships, and we have ours. Um, they are the gods of power and the gods of success and the gods of beauty and the gods of status and the gods of fame and the gods of money and the gods of 401k and the gods of retirement accounts, and the list just goes on and on and on. Now, Dagon, the god of the corn harvest, was actually one of a multitude of Philistine gods. In fact, he was one of the main gods because corn was one of the main crops. And farmers would offer sacrifices to the god of the corn harvest in an attempt to secure a good harvest. That was the purpose of all of the Philistine gods. 
is that you pick the gods that were, there were all of these gods. You pick the gods that were most relevant to something you needed. And those were the gods that you worshiped and those were the gods that you offered sacrifices to. It was a very pagan worldview that saw the gods as primarily heavenly good luck charms. It's actually the same way that the Israelites had begun to treat the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't so much that they were putting their trust in God, like Jonathan had done when he marched around the city of Jericho carrying the Ark in response to God's command. They were using the Ark as a kind of good luck charm. In essence, they had turned the Ark into a pagan idol that they thought would help them win battles. For them, the ark was no longer about experiencing the power and presence of God. It was about using the ark for their own purposes. Now, when the Philistines put the ark in the temple of Dagon, they were just reflecting their pagan worldview. The, the core of paganism was taking elemental stuff in the universe, work, Harvest, beauty, recreation, wine, the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, and deifying them for their own purposes. So everyone had multiple gods that they worshiped depending on what their particular needs were. And in that worldview, the question is not, is God true? Like, we live in a world where that's the kind of question that we talk about God. Like, is God true? Like, does God exist? But in that kind of worldview, the question is not, is God true or does God exist? The question is, what God is most helpful? What God is most functional? What God works the best? It, paganism was incredibly pragmatic. And at times, we turn God, the God, into almost the same kind of thing where it's no longer about like, is God true? Or does God exist? It's like, well, does God work? Like more and more people are asking the question, like, I just wanna know, does it work? Like, I just wanna know if I give my life to Jesus, if I trust my life to God, like, will it work? Will God help me get to where I need to get to? Will God fix the things that need to be fixed? Like, will it work? Very kind of pragmatic view of God. So the reason the Philistines took the ark and put it in the temple is because they saw it as another God that could help them in battle. It wasn't as powerful a God as they thought because they had just defeated the Israelite army, but it probably could help some, maybe in some little skirmishes, <laughs> maybe in some little battles where they didn't need a lot of help then maybe the, the Ark of the Covenant would help. So they put the Ark in the temple of Dagon. But the next morning when they come into the temple, they see that Dagon has fallen on his face before the Ark of the Lord. And at first, they don't think anything of it. They, they probably thought it was just something that student ministry had done because student ministry gets blamed for everything. And uh, so they just probably thought, oh, some, somebody. So they put, they, they, they just set Dagon back in his place. 
But then the next morning they come in and it's even worse. Once again, Dagon has fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. But this time his head and his hands have been broken off and are laying over by the threshold of the entrance into the temple. Now this gets their attention. Because the head of an idol was the sign of wisdom and the hands were the sign of power. So having Dagon laying there on the floor before the ark of the Lord with its head and hands broken off would have been a symbol that Dagon is both foolish and powerless. But then it gets even worse. A plague breaks out in Ashdod, the city where the temple of Dagon is, and so they move the ark to the Philistine city of Gath. They say, we've got to get the ark out of here. Like all this stuff is happening, idols are falling, plagues are happening, we've got to get this ark out of here. So they get the ark to the city of Gath. And the same thing happens there. This terrible break, uh, plague breaks out. So they try to take it to another Philistine city, the city of Ekron. But by the time that they get there, the word has spread about what has been associated with the ark in these other cities. And the people of Ekron meet this contingent delivering the ark at the city. And they say, not in our town. Like, not in this place. You are not bringing that ark into this city. So as chapter 6 of 1 Samuel opens, we see the Philistine leaders getting together and trying to figure out, what are we going to do? We, we, we brought this ark in. We thought it would be like another god set alongside all of our other gods, maybe help us in a few ways, and we can't control it. Like, what are we going to do? And this is what they decide. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back. Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, well, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. So basically, after seven months of possessing the ark, they decide, we have got to get rid of this thing. And so they put the ark on a cart. They tie two cows uh, to the cart. And uh, they load down the cart with all of this gold, all just enormous amounts of gold as a guilt offering for taking the ark in the first place. And they send it in the direction of the Israelite border town of Beth Shemesh. And that's where it stays for the next 20 years until David eventually becomes king and brings the ark back to Jerusalem. All right, so what does all of this interesting story that takes three chapters out of 1 Samuel, what does it teach us about the power and the presence of God? And this is the point in the sermon where I go, it teaches us three things. Because that's the way God always works in sermons. 
was that somehow, magically, God always teaches us three things. But really, as I've been living with this passage this week, as much as I wanted there to be three things, there are nine. No, I'm just kidding. No, you're gonna love what I'm about to say. There's one. <laughs> There's one main thing that this narrative is teaching us about the power and the presence of God. And that is this, that God cannot, will not be tamed. God cannot, will not be tamed. The Israelites lost the ark because they thought the ark was a way of controlling, harnessing the power of God. And the Philistines basically thought the same thing until they came face to face with the untamable power of God and then they couldn't get rid of the ark fast enough. But both the Israelites and the Philistines made the same mistake. They tried to permanently, this is the point. And this is the thing that sometimes when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, that we, you know, as we talk about the importance of the mercy seat and the Ten Commands that were there and the presence that Moses had experienced, sometimes we forget this season of time when the Ark was treated like this good luck charm for the people of Israel. And basically, that's the mistake that both the Israelites and the Philistines made. They tried to permanently attach the power and the presence of God to an object. The Ark of the Covenant represented the power and presence of God, but the Israelites and the Philistines tried to turn it into a good luck charm, a kind of their own personal trophy that could help them win battles and accomplish goals. And the reality is that sometimes we do the same thing. We try to permanently attach the power and the presence of God to an object or a system or an experience or a method. The Israelites try to do it with the ark. We try to do it with all kinds of stuff. Sometimes the, the way that we think the way that we came to Christ, you know, everyone comes to Christ in a different way, different journey, different experience. God works in, in all different kinds of ways to bring us to himself. But sometimes we think the way that we came to Christ is the way that everyone should come to Christ, that we experience God's presence and transforming power in a certain way. And we think that's the way that it has to be done. I grew up in a church that was pretty convinced that people could not come to Jesus, <laughs> that people could not come to Christ unless you had an altar call every Sunday and saying 20 verses of just as I am. And the fact that some of you do not know what an altar call is and have never heard of just as I am is actually incredibly encouraging to me. But that was the sense, like the sense was the only way people are gonna to come to Jesus is if every week we have an altar call 
And every week we sing just as I am. And that's the way, because that's the way many of them came to Jesus. And so they're convinced that's the way that everyone is going to come to Jesus. Or sometimes we become convinced that for God to work, preaching has to look a certain way because that's the preaching that we grew up with. Or worship has to look a certain way because that's the worship that we have experienced. Or programs in the church have to look a certain way because those are the programs that we have experienced. So if God used adult Sunday school to transform your life, then it's tempting to think that God has permanently attached his power to adult Sunday school. And that's what Israel did with the ark. They became convinced that the ark was the key to winning battles. And so they became more dependent on the ark than they did upon God. They ended up worshiping the sign of God's power rather than God. That's so easy to do because we become so enamored with the the signs of God's power, the manifestations of God's power, the vehicles that God uses to demonstrate his power that sometimes the vehicles that God uses to demonstrate his power, we began to worship and focus more on them than God himself. That's what happens to Israel. But God transcends all of the tangible manifestations of his power and presence. One day the ark goes out surrounded by 100,000 soldiers and it's powerless. Think about that. Goes out surrounded by 100,000 soldiers and they lose the battle. Then four days later, idols are falling, plagues are breaking out, a nation is being subdued and there's not a soldier in sight. It's a poignant reminder of the untamable power of God. A God that is not limited to certain objects or certain methods or certain strategies. A power that cannot be reduced to our own personal good luck charm or our own personal trophy that helps us just win battles and accomplish our goals. So let me ask you a question. This is the question I've been pondering this week in my own life. Like, where are you trying to tame God in your life right now? Where are you trying to control God's power, manage God's power in your life right now like what what things what practices what what approaches what methods have you permanently attached the power of God to and said this is the way that God always manifests his power this is the way that God is always going to work this is just how God does it. This is how God's power manifests itself. You know, depending upon our background, our experience, where we were raised, the, 
settings we were raised in will determine oftentimes the things that we become convinced are the manifestations of God's power. So if you come from a charismatic kind of background, there's just some things that you've experienced in that journey where you go, that's it. That's how you experience God's power in your life. Or if you come from a more liturgical background, there are things in that where you go, that's it. Like that's how you experience the power and the presence of God. If you grow up in the United States and this culture and you come to know Jesus as your savior, you may tend to have one view of like how you experience God's transforming power and presence of your life. But if you grew up in the Middle East or you grew up in Europe or you grew up in Africa, you may have a very different kind of experience of how you experience God's presence and power in your life. And all of us, even if you grew up with no connection to the church, but have made your way to this point, even if you haven't connected all the dots yet, there's already, you know, the people that have influenced you up to this point, the way that they experience the power of God is the way that you think you should experience the power of God. And so often, the people that God uses to bring us to Christ, sometimes we are so thankful for God using that person and demonstrating God's power in that person that we think that's the way. Like that's the way that God demonstrates his power in our lives. So based on our experiences and based on our backgrounds and based on the things that we have gone through, all of us kind of have this canon within a canon. We have this subset within this larger, infinite number of ways that God can manifest his power, where we find ourselves limiting God. We find ourselves trying to tame God. And God is always, this is what's been just rolling over and over in my heart and my mind this week that God is always wanting to do more in our lives than oftentimes we give him space to do. So are you willing to lay some things down that God has used that have been amazing manifestations of his grace? Are you willing to lay some arcs down and look beyond them to the power behind it and open yourself up to fresh new expressions of God's power? In your life. God, we are so overwhelmed when we think about your power and your presence. And as we read through scripture, 
we see all of these different ways in which you manifested that, that power and that presence. You, you spoke to Moses out of the Shekinah glory that hovered over the ark. And yet we don't worship the ark, we worship you. You led the people of Israel in a, in a cloud by day, in a cloud, a pillar of fire by night, and yet we do not worship the cloud or the pillar of fire, we worship you. You have demonstrated your power in all of our lives in different ways, and yet we do not worship the ways in which you have manifested your power. We worship you. Lord, open our hearts, make us open to fresh new expressions of your power and your presence in our lives. May we not limit you. May we not try to tame you. And we pray this in the untamable power of Jesus Christ who gave everything for us. In his name we pray.